Welcome to In-House Legal Uncovered, a major Lindsay and Africa podcast exploring what it takes to make it in-house. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of the In-House Legal Uncovered podcast in 2023. Thank you to everyone who has listened this year and has sent me their thoughtful comments or ideas for future shows. Uh, this podcast has been, has been a blast to put together all year, and special thanks to my colleague, Heather Travellini, who all year has helped to produce this podcast and get it into shape to share with all the listeners. Uh, throughout the year, I've interviewed general counsels and other senior lawyers, and also and we met with a CHRO of a large Midwestern public company and a head of career services at one of the country's most prestigious law schools. I'm really proud of what we've put together this year, and I'm looking forward to having more fabulous guests in 2024. For the last episode of the year, I wanted I wanted to do something very different and very special. With a laser-like precision, I hunted down two of my favorite colleagues to join me for a special end-of-the-year roundtable discussion about what the year 2023 has brought us in the legal industry from an in-house hiring perspective and what we can expect in 2024, although I don't think either of them brought their crystal balls with them. I could have spoken to any number of people at MLA, but I wanted two people who could represent the U.S. geography from coast to coast, and since I'm in Chicago, I got myself an East Coaster and a West Coaster. First, meet Kirk Coleman. Kirk, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Great. Thrilled you're here. Kirk is a director in our uh, D.C. office. Maybe, Kirk, tell the listeners a little bit uh, about yourself. Yeah, I'm Kirk Coleman. I work in the D.C. office doing in-house counsel recruiting. You know, I cut my teeth as an attorney at Skadden Arps, where I did project finance, specifically in the renewable energies field. Although we did a ton of corporate work that ran the gambit from MNA to financing and everything in between. Um, I've been at MLA for about two years now doing in-house counsel recruiting, and I, I really enjoy my time here. Great, Kirk. Thanks for joining me today. And next we have Tan Nguyen. Tan is a managing director in our LA office. Tan, welcome. Thank you, Michael. And to be clear, you're one of my favorites as well. Thank you for having me. Flattery will get you everywhere. Um, <laughs> and tell us, uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to reveal our special fact in a minute about how we know each other from back, but tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Tan Nguyen, a native Chicagoan who, after spending my whole life in the cold, has now escaped the Midwest and migrated west <laughs> to California, where I live with my husband and two kids. Uh, went to Northwestern for undergrad, got my JD from GW Law, and spent many years as a litigator in D.C. at Clifford Chance and Latham and Watkins in Chicago before going in-house to PepsiCo, where I was a compliance officer handling FCPA investigations and anti-corruption compliance. As an in-house counsel recruiter at MLA, I now have the best job of all, advising and helping companies navigate the legal talent landscape. Great. So our, our uh, Tan and I, uh, it turns out that we learned after she started here that we actually grew up one block from each other in uh, Rogers Park, which is uh, the northern part of the city of Chicago. So our houses growing up were probably, what, uh, less than a block away from each other. And we learned 500 this. feet. Yeah, 500 <laughs> feet. And so uh, quite a quite quite a small world. Uh, uh, Kirk and I special effect is that Kirk convinced me to buy a new car uh, a few months ago. I did. And, and Kirk, I, I love I love it. So it really that that, that car really hums. So I, I have you to thank for that. I hope your wife is happy too, Mike. <laughs> she, she is. She is very happy with it. I don't think she would have been happy with the other car. So. Okay, so uh, so thanks again for coming to this uh, podcast. Uh, Want to talk about 2023 a little bit? So 
If I asked uh, you to summarize 2023 in maybe 30 seconds, how would you respond? Uh, either one, who wants to take that one first? I'll go. I think belts have tightened. Candidates have seemed to get to be have gotten more cautious about where they go next, while companies have also been extremely thoughtful this year and very cautious about additional hiring, making sure that each hire is a strategic long-term hire. We've seen also a series of layoffs in certain industries, such as technology, that used to once leave lawyers a bit more insulated. Um, but rest assured, legal hiring continues, particularly in sectors that are a bit more recession-proof, such as healthcare, food, consumer products, energy. It's it's um it it's bound to rebound in 2024 for sure. Yeah, I echo those thoughts, Don. Um, I, you know, I try not to say that I'm an economist, but, you know, I think interest rates have certainly had a big impact on businesses um, and their decision to make hiring. Although I will note that I've seen a large uptick in, in new searches that are coming out and clients that are engaging us to help find lawyers and compliance professionals. So my glossy outlook is that, you know, next year is going, we're going to see a rebound. Yeah, and for me, I guess I would say for 2023, there was a time, and I've been doing this for 15 years, there was a time where admittedly you could get a search and you just knew that it was a search that was fairly easy to get done. I don't can't think of a single search now where I would say that's just a layup, that's something that's going to be straightforward. Even the searches that outwardly seem simple, the market can be so tight, so complicated, um, there are so many different thoughts going back and forth with candidates and clients that every search has its own unique challenges that still make it challenging um, for the search to successfully you know, get to a placement. That would be my that would be my take. Mike, you, you bring up a really good point. I've gotten the question this year with rifts and layoffs. Has it been easier to find top legal talent? And I think that in 2023, we've been experiencing uh, challenges, right? Um, there's been so much movement in the past two years that there tends to be bigger challenges getting candidates to be willing to move again, given the market uncertainties that they're facing this year. Many have just moved jobs in the last one to two years. And so there are a lot of people who also don't live where they last lived or where their jobs are. So we've seen many lawyers moving out of major metropolitan areas and cities like L.A., New York, San Francisco and back home to be closer to their family especially where there's lower cost of living. And so um, roles with stronger comp that might have attracted a candidate before, you know, are not, it's not having the same impact that it had in 2022. Yeah, and somebody was commenting even a meeting this morning saying, I mean, it was going a little bit off script, but talking about how relocation has become so mm -hmm. even more challenging maybe than it even was in 2020 and 2021. Are you are the two of you seeing that? I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about searches like that. Kirk, would you? Yeah. I see, you, I see yeah. you nodding your head, even though the audience. I'm nodding <laughs> vigorously over here. I mean, I have a few searches that have been somewhat difficult because, you know, clients are looking for folks to be back in the office, even if it's on a hybrid basis. But I think because of that, you know, we're typically for higher level searches, folks would have relocated. I think people are really pushing back now. I think they're saying, why can't I work remotely? Because I've been working remotely for the past three years. Why would I need to relocate to this new city if I don't have to? Um, certainly presents a challenge in my practice. And really, you know, I think what we're trying to do is, you know, let candidates know that, you know, being in the office, especially for a senior legal leadership role, it's going to be important for you to be around the other executives. 
and that may require some form of relocation. So what else um, what else did either of you see in the legal market that stood out this year? I gave you the 30 second uh, deadline before, but what else uh, when you think about 2023, what else stood out this year? I think corporate deals have been down. M&A, IPOs, venture capital, private equity funding, access to capital feels like it's down, which means that lawyers and general counsels who might have been hired in 2021 and 2022 to do deal work and take a company potentially public are experiencing a lot more instability now with those deals not panning out and having to take on roles that are just broader and more commercial in nature than they had anticipated over the more specialized strategic transactions they might have been hired to handle. Yeah, I think renewal, I've seen a, a bit of an uptick with renewable energy companies and some of those highly regulated industries. Um, it seems like those folks are hiring a bit more, which is which is good. And as a previous energy lawyer, I'm always excited to see, you know, those roles expand. I have had several renewable clients this year come to mm -hmm. us for a series of searches. And um, one, just to follow on to, to Kirk's point there, heavily regulated or publicly traded companies, while business might be down, the legal needs appear to be growing and not necessarily shrinking. So um, that has prompted leadership in some of our clients to cut legal spend for external counsel, stretching further the in-house lawyer to come up with creative strategies to find resources to do more with less. I think for me, what stood out about 2023 was sort of maybe the, um, let me make sure I'm explaining this right. So before COVID, there was this idea that, you know, you could always go to the law firms and hire somebody at a law firm who wanted to go in-house because everybody wanted to do that. And then, you know, COVID came and then the economic rebirth in 2021 and 22. And the idea is, well, they don't want to go in-house right now because they're making so much money and everything is so healthy and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this year, things haven't been quite as healthy and the money hasn't been there. And yet, the law firm candidates are not jumping back to those entry level in-house positions that they were jumping on in 2017 and 2018, 2019. They're still holding out for a variety of reasons for bigger positions, a deputy, a GC to small company. And so it may or may not be, again, I left my crystal ball at home, but it may or may not be the end of that rampant, oh, I've got to search for a sixth or seventh year, put an ad out. There's some law firm lawyer who's going to join us. It'll be fine that might just be over. And I'm saying that there won't be plenty of law firm people who want to go in-house, but that this is just easy to do and you can just get anybody from a law firm, they all want to go in-house. That might be permanently dead. I, I don't know, but I, that's what it seems like right now. So it's a good that, point, Mike. I think, I think that's a good point. I mean, in, I think to Tom's point earlier, it seems like companies want folks with that in-house experience when they're coming in from the legal side um, sometimes law firm, you know, candidates, and we've all worked at law firms in the past, you know, you learn how to do the legal work really well, but sometimes the intricacies of working in-house, understanding how to work with commercial and business teams, you don't necessarily learn that at a law firm. And I think now the companies are, you know, pulling back a little bit with their hiring. If they're going to have a choice, they're likely going to choose someone who already has that experience, opposed to having to train them. I was going to mention, it also feels like because 2022 felt like such a frenzied hiring period, maybe some pent up demand from 2021, we were in a really strongly candidate driven market last year. And it was common for candidates to have multiple, multiple strong offers from competing employers. Whereas this year, the demand seems to have cooled and people are a bit more cautious to move and just have um, 
they're more cautious to move, but they're also having less choices to pick from. So that kind of creates pressures on our searches because, you know, while our clients may think we have a bigger pool to pick from, there's just a, a little bit more uncertainty for candidates to make a jump. What uh, both of you were getting so smart on me and talking about renewable deals and all these things. <laughs> and so, but, but, but seriously, what kind of um, substantive experience, what were the themes of this year? What were, what were our clients looking for? Um, you know, if anything, was there something more than you saw this year than in 2022 or something much less than 2022? What did you see in that vein? One thing I saw is more requests for utility player commercial generalists who could slot in where needed and cover maybe more ground in different practice areas over highly specialized lawyers, particularly in practices that maybe have been viewed, unfortunately, as more of a nice to have than a must have in times of tightening belts, such as compliance or privacy that seem to have taken a bit of a hit this year. For example, I had a slew of um, privacy searches in 2022. This year, we've had some, and even in those searches, we had what felt like a larger talent pool because of actually a lot of recently laid off privacy lawyers, you know, and and largely from the tech sector. That's good. I mean, I I echo that. I think I think generally just that well-rounded, strong business acumen is something that big clients look for. Someone who can come in and not be an attorney who just says no or tries to enforce the rules, but serves as a true partner with the business and commercial teams, with the other executives to really get to yes. Another thing I noticed, and I'm not sure if it's an uptick from previous years, but board experience is always going to be really helpful. Um, you know, always counsel, you know, folks who are deputy general counsels who potentially want to be a GT. Try to get that board experience. You know, if you can get the assistant secretary title and begin presenting to boards or subcommittees, that experience is always going to show that you have, you know, the breadth of work to be able to to rise the ranks. Yeah, what about, I mean, and that, you know, talking about the intangible. So all three of us have heard our clients give us a litany of things they're looking for from intangibles. What do you think you're hearing about more these days? Um, you know, what, what's what are those kind of things? I think Kirk, you were getting in before with somebody who's being a part of the business, but what are the other kind of common threads that we're hearing? So for audience members who are maybe starting their careers or at a law firm and one of those people who is going to transition in house, what are those intangible things they should be working on? What are the things we're hearing? Yeah, I mean, I, on top of that, you know, I think executive presence is something that's really important. You know, folks want to know that you can present to a wide array of audiences uh, to be able to push forward an agenda and to be able to play in the big pool, if you will. You know, ambition and being eager and showing your interest in the company and its values is always going to be well, well received. And, you know, really just being a smart business minded attorney, I think is something that clients always are looking for. I couldn't agree more, Kirk. And and on top of the executive presence, leadership, management skills, financial acumen, resourcefulness. You know, we had last year and this year similar requests, but more pointedly this year, a request to have GCs who know how to control costs on the outside external counsel spend ability to roll up sleeves and do the legal work themselves and only going to outside counsel for truly special needs. If you're a solo contributor GC, we had a lot more emphasis on that this year. 
Yeah, and I think that if I mean if we if we break it down to like interviewing itself, so not just the skills they're looking for in the job, although the two are probably related. If I could, <laughs> if I could give two pieces of advice to anybody interviewing, it would be when in doubt, be humble. Like humility goes really, really, really well for most people. And so when you're in doubt about should I brag about this or should I not, humble. And then two, uh, <laughs> concise. And this is probably more, I mean, probably something that's important for them to do in the job as well, but particularly for interviewing, you know, as I've, as the years have gone on for me, I just see it so many times, these candidates who, they're probably not that talkative in their normal lives, but they interview with us or they interview with the client and it's like where they're priest and they're, they're just so excited and they have so much to say and it just, just kind of all comes out. And so it's like, and I don't know about the two of you, but I just hear this feedback from clients so often, a nice, you know person but you know couldn't get them to couldn't get them to focus or a candidate who interviews with us and they go on for seven minutes and like is, <laughs> am i going on too long yeah 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 probably a little bit and so just keep it concise um those are those and are my, things that can probably help yeah and the brevity and concision not just in presence and the way you you communicate but also written right resumes that are too yeah. long too long didn't read mm-hmm. it right right exactly yeah. exactly and, you know, I've seen even on the broad, on the other side of the spectrum, people who are so concise that they're not able to actually make a connection with the people they're interviewing with. You know, I think when you're interviewing for a job, you want to make sure that you're building that rapport quickly. You're getting to understand the person, their values, their communication style, and just trying to rush through the interview without building that rapport can certainly have negative impacts. Spot on, Kirk. Especially in times when we have so much more Zoom and Teams video interviewing these days than the in-person where you can really build a connection face-to-face. And then I also think for the in-house jobs, this is probably less so for the interviewing, more about actually succeeding at the job. I I probably always hear this, so it's probably not just a 2023 thing, but that um, so the legal department will make the hire. But then in the background, it's that key business uh, ally, that key business partner, the head of the division, the president, the whatever it is. And the, when the uh, general counsel, let's say, is interviewing the per- the candidate for the role, they're thinking, how is that person going to be able to interact with that senior business leader and thinking through? So particularly if somebody's coming straight from a law firm and that's not something they do all the time, you're going to have to not only be really well versed in the law and working with other lawyers, um, and your boss, but you'll also have to build this relationship with a senior business leader. And those skills aren't always just commonsensical. They don't teach that in law school. They don't maybe teach it at a law firm. So that kind of thing, I think I just feel like I hear that more often these days about just that is the that's the thing in the back of them that everyone should be aware of. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard from clients saying, I don't want one of those lawyers that just identifies the risks and tells me on the one hand this and on the one hand that. <laughs> Give me a pragmatic <laughs> business lawyer who's going to actually help me navigate those challenges. Well, let's, Pragmatic, um, I think that's the perfect word, Tom, to use. Being pragmatic is, is exactly on point. Yeah. Well, let's get into a couple and, and a couple of the, the topics we always hear about and we're always focused on. And, and Kirk, you, you started it a little bit, which is office time, still four years in a row, still the number one you know issue I feel like we hear about. And it gets it is critically important. It's probably the number one thing that comes up in almost every conversation. So 
I'll ask you, what are the what are the trends you're yeah. seeing? What are you give us the spectrum? Tell the the people that probably only know one company, they only know their company or their firm. Just what's 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 going on out there? What's what's what what's are, what are our expectations? What are what are clients saying? What are candidates saying? It's funny, I've actually written two articles now on on this work from home piece and remote piece. The biggest thing is, I think, you know, no one is, it's rare that you see someone in the office five days a week. My sense is, is the five day in the week workplace is probably gone. You know, most clients are shifting towards three to four days in the office. But the biggest discrepancy I've been seeing is from higher level legal folks and lower level legal folks. I think the higher level folks, you know, understand that it's important to have a culture of in-office presence to be able to train, to mentor, to be able to provide those intangibles. And, you know, for those levels, we're, we're seeing people in the office quite frequently. For lower level folks or folks who actually worked through the pandemic and, you know, maybe came up working in a remote environment, they're certainly still pushing to have a fully remote environment or as much remote as possible. Um, we're seeing tensions between that all the time, and it, it's helpful for us to try to guide and, and, and advise both sides, the client and the candidate, on what a realistic opportunity or, or thing can be. I actually had this topic come up over dinner at my house the other day, hosting some law firm friends, you know, that's our, our network nowadays, um, who are at big law firms now. And it was interesting to hear their perspective that it feels like law firms are getting stricter in terms of requiring in-person presence compared to the days pre-COVID when People had the flexibility to work wherever they wanted if it worked for their team and their specific practice. Now there's, you know, written policies of needing three to four days in the office and people are, you know, people's badges are being checked and there's there's accountability from that standpoint. So it was interesting to see that we have a stricter requirement in certain areas of our legal field now than there was even pre pre COVID. And maybe that's, I mean, that's, it's interesting because that's how I feel a little bit. I was having this debate with somebody the other day and saying that I feel like I'm probably in the office about the same as when I was in in 2019, which was never, you know, five days a week or four days. I'd have, you know, I've got little kids and occasionally I was, you know, staying home. I live in the burbs and there sometimes were meetings. And so I wouldn't come to the office. I would just go to the meeting and then it didn't make sense. And I was probably in the office then like three or four days. And it's probably not that radically different than what I'm doing now. Maybe it's a day less, but like it's not that different. And so I do think, Tom, to your point, there might be this like vision of 2019 that everybody just came to an office five days a week. And that's what we did. And that, I'm not sure that, that was totally true back then. Um, I think people were in an office. They probably were in an office more then than now. I don't disagree with that, but I don't think it was like. 90% of lawyers just went to an office five days a week. I don't I don't know if that was the true the case. Right. Um, and at I the think same that's time, the issue too is oh sorry, go ahead, Tom. Oh no, no go you you go, Kirk. No, I was just gonna say, you know, I think articulating the rationale for being in the office is so important. So, you know, John Catchman, our CEO, I thought he said it best. He said, you know, when you're doing kind of that rote or day-to-day -day activities, that's something that could be done at home easily, probably more efficiently. But when the softer intangibles come into play, when client contact or working with teams, that really requires in-office presence. Um, you know, what we try to do is talk to clients and candidates about parsing through when are the times you need to be in the office, when are the times you don't, and trying to find that happy middle ground. 
I think clients can, you know, continue to work on, you know, really articulating when they want people in the office, why they want them in the office. And I think that attracts a better talent pool. Yeah. And I also think it's important for candidates to hear a word of caution when you're asking for 100% fully remote, that it may signal cultural fit issues or whether you're dedicated to the opportunity. We hear from our clients, you know, that their reaction to a candidate asking for office time or no office time as sort of a gauge for cultural fit. Do you have someone who wants to build relationships in person or will they just want to clock in and clock out? So candidates who are less willing to drive to an office and maybe, you know, um, not and, and spend all their time at home working from home may be signaling to companies that they're not willing to build relationships as much for the job. We were at a presentation a couple of weeks ago and somebody who works for one of these organizations who does all these studies about these things. I won't mention the company just in case I cite the data wrong, but um, <laughs> their, they, their data show that there was basically an average of 2.3 is kind of the average days that they're seeing. And that seems to be this happy medium, which tells me that for all the companies that are doing four or five days a week still, there are just as many companies that are doing zero days and are fully remote. And so anybody who feels like their answer is the answer, it's just wrong. I, I literally feel like I'm hearing every single possible situation out there. Um, I, they also said, and I think this went a little bit to what Kirk was saying before, they said they, they are recommending that there should be, particularly if you're a bit more on the remote side, there should still be that one meaningful meeting every week with your team or with your boss or with the people on your team. Um, and that should be something people are really focused on. And the last thing I would add on this is that, and I think Kirk, you and I have had a search like this. I think Tom, you and I had a search like this, like when the client says, well, it's gotta be in the office and the candidate pool is saying, I'm not sure about that. Candidate pool tends to win <laughs> on those battles at the end of the day, not always, but it's it generally I feel like I've worked on more search with a client's been the one who's had to bend than the candidates. Maybe that'll change. Maybe that'll change going forward. But that that's generally been where things have played out. At least I've seen. Yeah, and I yeah. think clients are companies are getting more creative about in office and what that means. Right. Um, I've had some searches this year where a client wanted someone to initially relocate and have that local presence. Well, this was a search, you know, in a part of the world that was not strong in that talent pool. And so they ended up with a solution, which is to, to fly the person in on a certain cadence that really allowed them to have in-person presence without having to relocate and without having to, um, you know, be there 24-7 or five days a week or you know even, even three days a week, right? Just to have a schedule that says you're going to come in, um, fly in one to two times per month and build relationships in person still. So, so the other area that we think we hear about from our clients, but also something that we're bringing up with a lot of our clients uh, directly and, and, and proactively, that ongoing um, effort to move the needle from a, from a DEI perspective, um, what did you see from clients in 2023? Was it more? Was it less? Was it different? Um, just, yeah, where does that stand? And I, I know this is a constant um, issue in nearly every one of our searches and internally for us as an organization. What 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 are the two of you seeing? You know, I think I think most of our clients are are, are going to push for DE and, DE and I when we're looking at the talent pool. 
I think what's most important is to really look at what candidates expect when it comes to DE&I um, and making sure that those issues are being addressed. So for example, MLA, we had a now uh, law firm candidate survey and it noted that 71% of millennial attorneys of color feel like they've received some form of racial um, internal bias or, or racial discrimination at the law firms. And more than 80% of women at law firms have also felt that type of pressure. Um, so I think when we talk about DE&I, our clients obviously want us to get a diverse and top talent pool. Um, but what's going to attract diverse candidates is making sure that the culture of the company actually reflects reflects what the DEI initiatives are trying to to achieve. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Kirk, and I've actually been really encouraged by how increasingly savvy many of our clients are on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It seems like an increasing priority, as it should be for you know a large number of our clients. The conversations also seem to have been really open. Uh, our clients are sharing with us what diversity means to them and their teams. And now I I would lo love to share that there are instances when we've been able to then educate, further educate our clients about what that means in terms of bringing diverse slates and making sure that it's really not an exercise about excluding anyone, right? It's really about just making sure that you've you've thought about the talent pool and if you're in a talent pool in certain sectors that are really not diverse, you're open with your clients about those challenges. So this year, what feels a little bit different, Mike, is that because there's a little bit more caution to hire given the tight economic conditions, um, some of our clients have noted they're, they're double downing on DEI and wanting to truly ensure that the hires that they make have extra attention on DEI when they do end up making that hire, which is encouraging to me that we're having those conversations that clients continue to be very, you know, put it at their top of their priority list. I think that's right. I think the, um, I think uh, whichever one you've said that clients really are much more knowledgeable about this now and these organizations. I think there was a time, at least for me, five or six or seven years ago, where you either had companies that were completely clueless, didn't know what it was, didn't care about it, were scoffing at it, or were kind of doing it in a very klutzy way. Um, you could just tell it was very awkward conversations. Um, now it seems like there's a lot more commonality with companies that kind of figured out the kind of com common way to sort of do this the right way, probably because they've had so many more at-bats over the last, you know, three, five, seven, whatever you want to call it. And so it's being pretty consistent um, versus that's, I think maybe that's wrong. Maybe it's a small sample size for me, but I feel like that's at least what I'm seeing. Maybe I'm hearing that from the two of you as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. I think and candidates I'm are savvy too. Um, you know, Mike, I think the candidates now, especially diverse candidates, know how to look at a company, how to talk to folks at a company to see if those diversity initiatives are actually being met. I think clients are savvy in the way that they want to make sure that they're providing a safe, inclusive space, you know, making sure that they highlight that when they do an interview process. Um, so, I, I mean, it seems like the needle is being pushed forward and it's, you know, as a diverse attorney myself, you know, I, I like to make sure that, that, you know, I'm practicing what I preach there too. Kirk, spot on. I'd say that there seems to be more of a partnership between companies and candidates and, you know, us at MLA to figure out how to move the needle on DEI. We're all rowing in the same direction. Candidates are become, becoming more savvy at asking, what does the leadership at the top look like? You know, I understand that they mm -hmm. want 
to push the needle on DEI at this level, but what's happening at the top ranks of the company? And you know, those are questions that we have to answer for candidates on a daily basis when we run a search. Yeah, and I think that also, um, like I had a client the other day who pointed out this one candidate who um, they really, we were, they weren't sure about the candidate, they were kind of in the middle, but then they pointed out, you know, because we, I think we had put them maybe slightly a tier two candidate and they were like, you know, you also look at the resume and this person's a veteran and veterans are part of our DE&I initiative, and we want to make sure that we're giving that person, so maybe that person should be a leg up. And then just yesterday, I did a pitch with an organization that, um, a pretty progressive organization, a nonprofit, and, you know, I mentioned that this would be important for us, and it was kind of, they just kind of laughed and said, honestly, you know, Mike, uh, we, we for us, that probably means having a man in our organization. We don't have that many, you know, men. It was kind of like, <laughs> they laughed, and we had a nice chuckle about it, but it, it wouldn't, uh, to my point before about it being klutzy or awkward, I feel like it's a little bit less, maybe a lot less than it was maybe three to five years ago where you would have that conversation and everybody would be like, ooh, not sure that was articulated the right way. Now it seemed a little little lighter, a little, you know, it still is as important as ever, probably even more important now. Just seems like a little more of comfortable conversation now. Yeah, and I'm also seeing more rigor around clients asking for our own MLA internal diversity stats when we work with a client as well as our statistics on an individual search, like how is the talent pool coming out? How many, you know, certain buckets of, of diversity in terms of who we're looking at? How are we doing our screens? How are we assessing talent and pushing and, and moving the needle on DEI? So I think all of those things really highlight the fact that it's a it's a collaborative effort, right? It's um it's something that we do with our clients and with our candidates in partnership. So we're talked a little bit about culture here, too. So this is actually a question I'm actually really curious what the two of you have on this. I'll be taking notes. So culture, like, again, I've been doing this, you know, spoiler alert, I've been doing it a lot longer than the two of you. But back in the day, you know, in the olden ages with the rotary phones and all that, you'd get a new search and you'd go to the office and you'd visit and you'd meet with people. And it would be sometimes you would do that for half a day for even a mid-level search that was so important. And now in the post-COVID age or the COVID age or whatever, even for sometimes as highest level searches, you may only get two or three 30-minute Teams calls. You're asking about culture. They kind of give you some general boilerplate language, maybe a couple nuggets. And then our candidates are asking us, what's the culture of these places? How are you answering that? How are you figuring out the culture of your clients? Are you pushing more? Are you how, how are you doing that? I, I'm really actually really curious what the answer is. Mike, are you looking for us to share our secret sauce at MLA? I'm just um... <laughs> I am. I, well, I want um, give me part of the secret sauce. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I personally think I personally think that is part of what we do best, like what really sets apart how we assess cultural fit early on. We're talking to our clients. We're partnering with the HR teams within the organizations that we're working on behalf of. We're learning the culture of a company from multiple sources, including the market, and not to mention all of the past interactions with a company that our firm has collected with candidates working at that company and company leadership across the entire 40 years of MLA history in the legal recruiting market. So that's kind of how I have been able to kind of collect research and collect culture 
on any company that I'm doing search for, but then how do we communicate that to candidates? It starts with the position description, the way we describe the opportunity. That's all part of the value add, I think, for our clients, the ability, our ability to market a position that will speak to the right candidate that has those attributes and is looking for a certain opportunity with a certain type of fit. And so we're channeling all of that cultural fit knowledge into our sourcing strategy when we screen and interview candidates. And then without giving the total secret sauce here, how we assess candidates against that cultural fit is a huge part of why our clients come to us for long-term hire needs. We screen and interview um, with questions that are custom tailored to assess the specific culture fit of that organization. And then we also deploy other proven work style behavioral tools to assess the fit, not just within a company culture, but also the cultural fit for that specific role. I I think that's spot on, Ton. I mean, you know, when you're when you're looking at cultural fit, it's the organization at large, which might have overarching values. But a lot of the time, the day-to-day interactions is really what's going to shape someone's, you know, perception of what the culture is of an organization. What we get to do is get to know the folks on the legal and compliance teams. We can see how they interact, what's their important values, how they communicate, and make sure that we're finding candidates who actually fit within what that culture is. So some clients may like people who move at a very fast pace, who can turn things very quickly, and some people are excited by that. In that example, that would be a great cultural fit for someone who, you know, likes to move fast and quick. Other ones, you know, people are more deliberate. They like to collaborate. They like to make sure that everyone's hands are in the pot before they move something forward. In that sense, then we're going to look for folks who actually like to slow things down, people who like to really collaborate with other people. So it's never a one-size-fits-all, but a big way that we're able to decipher our culture is just by talking to folks, as Tom said, folks in the market, folks at the company, um, and impressions of the company or organization thereof. Yeah, that's great. I, I took notes on everything the two of you said, so that's perfect, perfect <laughs> answer. And I don't think we gave away too many. I, I don't think we gave away too many secrets, which is good. And if I may just put in one more plug, I Please. think we win. We win candidates' hearts with how well we know our client. Right. I think one of the most um, rewarding parts of, of 2023 for me was getting a note from a candidate that I placed that said, MLA and your team, you're the best recruiters I've ever worked with because you had answers to my questions. You knew the company. You were able to share insights that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And that that is exactly how we do search. Right. It's It's knowing the players, knowing the candidates, knowing the clients. Yeah, yeah. I think that's you right. Because it's time to get to know our clients. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. <laughs> no. We're excited never, about this one. <laughs> yeah, I, no, it's it's right. I mean, look, it's it's every in some ways every culture has these commonalities that are table stakes, right? You know, you'd like to think they're ethical, um, honest. People reward hard work, effort, enthusiasm, but there are differences in cultures. And just knowing that certain lawyers are going to play certain places and other lawyers are going to play better at other places, it's just good to know that early on and not waste sort of uh, people's times. And we go on about, we probably have a whole separate, you know, 60 minute podcast just about that alone. Um, anecdotes for 2023. So, what are those stories that, you know, you'll be remembering at the end of your career? Oh, I remember that. That was, you know, something that I look back on. Do, do we have a, a I'm sure we do. We have a story or two that uh, comes to mind. No, no, no names. No, no, no names of our clients or candidates. But if, yeah, just what stood out to you this year? What will you if remember? If I might, 
if I might just preface that 23 has been a tough year, right? Challenging times, world events, of course, but also in legal search, we tend to feel the pain that our clients and candidates feel in the market, whether it's layoffs or other tough situations that companies are going through. Important to celebrate the wins, small and big, when we can. And one big win for me this year was meeting a wonderful general counsel at an MLA event for Asian American general counsels that I had co-hosted in LA with Perkins Coie. That event led me to be able to think of that individual general counsel when a specific kind of GC search came up. It doesn't usually happen that way so serendipitously, but that's probably why I'll remember it at the end of my career because serendipity in this job is something that happens from time to time and it feels magical. And it, perhaps maybe it's what I love most about what I get to do at MLA. You change lives and you positively impact companies and the world through a ton of serendipitous encounters that lead to opportunities for deserving candidates. Um, that also that story also brought me great fulfillment on the DEI impact front because knowing the legal talent in a market, being able to know right off the bat at the outset of a search, all of the players who would mesh well with a client, despite whatever might make that person a non-obvious choice or maybe an out-of-the-box candidate, that's how we begin to move the needle on DEI, I think. Awesome, like that's that. great. Kirk, top that. <laughs> I was, you know, I, I agree. It's been a tough year this year, but I've actually enjoyed 2023. I think looking back at 2021, 2022, when the market was so hot, it felt like we were moving all steam ahead. And, you know, I think that I've had the chance to really get to know candidates and clients even more because our process has slowed down a little bit. I think it gives us a chance to really work with candidates on a deeper level. Um, a win for me is I got a general counsel search out of D.C. that I'm really excited about. Um, that came out of a pitch that happened a few months ago for a lower level search. The client ended up you know, doing that search in-house, but they came back and asked us to pitch for their general counsel search um, that we won. So that's exciting for me and really just making my way throughout the community, you know, speaking on panels, getting to know folks in the industry um, and getting to know my colleagues like Tom and Mike getting to know y'all better and, and, you know, pushing my career forward here. Well, we'll definitely add into that is that we have, you know, fantastic colleagues at MLA. And I was just telling my manager this morning that one of the best things about this year has been to work with so many fantastic people from across the country, which is an awesome uh, opportunity. Um, with that said, I will give two quick anecdotes of, of stories related. One um, of this year, one is, um, you know, the joke is always once a client starts to fall out of love with a candidate, you can never get that back again. Well, actually, for the first time happened to me where a client, I, I won't give a lot of information about it, but a candidate said something that really upset the client and it just got worse and worse and worse. And I was sure this was just dead because it's usually what happens. And then just kind of gave it some time, gave it a little bit of thought. Everyone took a deep breath and can't see me, obviously, but it got worse and worse and worse. And then it just started getting better and better and better again. And sure enough, the hire was made. And recently, the GC said it was the best hire they made. And so I don't see that that often. Usually when it gets bad, it just keeps going bad. But this um, got better. And then the other more uh, somewhat serious, but uh, had a GC search recently where at the outset of the search, talking about location, I reached out to somebody who I'd known for a long period of time and always thought incredibly highly of asked if they would be interested, but they couldn't do the location. And I think the client was sort of focused on people who were nearby. The candidate was being a little picky choosy, did the search, didn't go exactly the way we wanted to, went after it a second time, 
and the candidate had kind of um, um, softened, the client had softened, got them together in an interview, truly love at first sight from both of them, made the placement, really exciting placement and just just that was one of the, probably my favorite you know I would say my favorite highlight maybe I did to say it but a highlight placement that I was really <laughs> proud of this year that just felt like it came together kind of organically that way that's awesome congrats Mike yeah that's awesome Mike how did you how did you shift the gears with the candidate yeah. that um that things went off the rails but it seemed to come back I'm curious what what tricks did you use to make sure that everything came back and you were able to close the search patience um, I, I'm going to take very little credit here. I think that both we didn't we didn't try to push it in any way, right? The client was taking their time; they weren't getting back to you know immediately. Um, the candidate also didn't jump the gun. Candidate didn't say, "Well, I can feel this is going badly, so I'm going to withdraw." Everyone just kind of took a pause for a little bit of time, and nobody pushed it. And then just kind of went with it ultimately. And also, of course, you know, since I knew both sides of the, the what had happened, I wasn't telling either one of them something that would be very incendiary. Just calmly saying, clearly we have some kind of problem here. You know, do we still want to do this? And just kind of letting everyone come to terms. If if either the client or the candidate had chosen to withdraw or to, you know, pull things away, so, so be it. So I, I credit them for both kind of taking a deep breath on it. But one thing I didn't do was try to force the issue um, and just kind of let it happen organically. So let me ask a question also about uh, another topic that we've heard a lot about in 2023, which is AI, you know, artificial intelligence, probably the first year that this has been a lead story in the news all the time. Um, has this technology, do you think, hit the legal industry or legal recruiting industry in a big way yet? Do you hear about it from clients or candidates on a regular or irregular basis? Like, you know, I'll start by sharing that I have seen AI help in the document review, litigation, compliance space in the sense of making repetitive tasks, things that lawyers may have been doing due diligence on companies, you know, kind of streamlining and helping in that way. I think the biggest concern for many of us is, you know, does it does it replace some of the legal jobs that um, we used to place for? And, you know, in my experience, you know, we're not going to have really a world in which AI completely replaces lawyers. It's more of replacing the repetitive tasks and allowing lawyers to focus on the more high level strategic work. Um, so in a way, you know, I feel like AI has been received very positively, but that it's it's um, it has been starting to really make an impact in certain sectors. Yeah, I don't know yet for me if I'm if I'm even uh, hearing about it yet. Right. I mean, everything you say, Tan, I completely you know echo what you're saying. I think that's completely right. I just don't know on a regular basis yet that I'm like hearing about it on a regular basis or people are talking about it. Obviously, in the news, I see it, you know, every night. Um but I think where where you're talking about is exactly probably where it's going. Um, so so uh, I think you know, like I said, it's like anything. It's like you hear about it and you wonder, gee, when is it going to directly affect me? And then it does. Yeah. Uh, one day. So what does 2024 look like? Uh, do you think we've talked a lot about 2023? You know, no one knows. I'm not going to ask you to take a crystal ball out, but are there some trend lines coming from maybe Q4 of this year that you think you're going to continue in 2024? Um, Kirk, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I mean, my sense is, is that I think that 2024 is certainly going to be a, a better year than 2023 when it comes to legal hiring. 
Um, I think that, you know, companies are taking a look at their books. I think interest rates seem to be stabilizing, which gives, you know, the markets a bit more confidence in hiring folks. I think we've all experienced clients who say, hey, we want to hire more attorneys. We're just not sure if we can increase the headcount. Um, but my sense is that stability is coming back, um, which should see a lot more openings, you know, in Q1, Q2 of 2024. Yeah, and I'll just add that, you know, because I live in San Francisco and we saw you know, massive amount of rifts in the tech space. And that's starting to thaw companies that were really in cutting mode are starting to begin to hire again. And then it really is sector specific. In 23, we experienced a lot of legal hiring, for example, in the renewable energy space. And part of that seemed to be regulatory trends that led to tax incentives for growth in this area in the U.S. market. So, you know, I'm expecting that to continue into 2024. Our project finance and energy lawyers, both, it seemed, in the law firm space and in-house, were in high demand. And we think that's going to continue into 24. Um, But, yeah, there are. This year was a tough year in the tech sector and, and other sectors like that. And, you know, we expect that to pick up in 24 for sure. It's probably it's probably exactly right. I, I've almost given up on any predictions, but I will I will add that one thing that may be an issue all year from a macro perspective will be the election. And mm-hmm. will people, particularly in the second half of the year, just start waiting it out to see what's going to happen, particularly if, you know, by Fourth of July, it's a really unclear, which is likely right. It's likely to be a very close election and people might just wait it out in the second half of the year to see who's going to win, who's going to have control, and then they can kind of make their decisions. That might be an old way school of thinking of things. That's the way people have talked for you know 20 years, so maybe it won't be that way. But I could see a bit of a, of a, of a lull the second half of the year with one way or another things kind of booming in 2025. But who knows? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of grasping at straws. That's spot on, Mike. And I think 22, we experienced so much movement in the market. People were willing to move jobs, were ready to move jobs. 23 felt like there was a lot of market uncertainty with companies. And so people held on to, you know, their roles a little bit more than in the past. And I think that means that in 24, there's going to be some more flexibility and thinking of, hey, as the market, you know, picks up, you know, it it is a better time to move in 24 than it was in 23. Yeah. And of course, there's also a slight difference between what does the job market look like in general? which I think we all think it's going to be better versus like how many people are going to like, it's a slight difference between that and like, what's the recruiting business or what's that going to actually be like? They're related, but they're not completely, it's not a one-to-one blanket over them. You can have hiring without people actually leaving jobs for all sorts of different reasons. Um, But that's a little bit uh, semantic. Um, What about, so you, you know, what about if you have a candidate, we just talked about candidates who might be, sitting there maybe waiting they didn't you know they they like their job but maybe they're looking to kind of uh move ahead in their career um they waited out 2023 it's january 1 2024 they're thinking maybe this is the year to make a move um what's the you know they're not sure and what's the what's the piece of advice you'd have for a candidate what's the what's the thing they should be doing in 2024 to really move that needle for them low-hanging fruit but my view is get your resume a facelift, right? Make sure that your resume and LinkedIn are consistent. Too often I hear from candidates that, hey, I I just, I'm happy in my job. I haven't updated LinkedIn or I have very little to say on LinkedIn and and it's really thin. Um, As recruiters, we use LinkedIn 
on a routine basis to find candidates. And so making sure that your LinkedIn is updated, that it says enough about what you've done so that we can identify what it is that, that you're looking for in the next role. Um, also so that you're on recruiters radars because we are using LinkedIn as an important tool to find candidates. And the other piece is it's, it's, I know networking is always something when I was a law student, it felt like a big chore, like a big job. Like, you know, you, you've got your day job, you've got your um, things on your plate. Networking feels like an extra hurdle. I recommend, you know, current new colleagues, classmates, um, hiring managers, recruiters, CEOs, GCs, you should be networking on a regular routine basis as one important part of your health of your career, not just when you're looking for a job actively, but even when you're passively in the market, it's always good to continue that networking. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, I also think it's important to, in the networking piece, talk to recruiters, talk to us. We're certainly here to help and can give you strategic advice on how to guide your career. Um, and also, if you're looking at, you know, taking a, or getting a promotion or moving up, I think it's important to be able to articulate where your strengths lie, where your weaknesses lie. Um, and if there are areas of gaps in your resume or based on your experiences, it's always a good idea to talk to your boss to see if there are ways that you can start to bolster some of those skills um, that you haven't had much exposure with in the past. You know, look at the position description of the type of job that you'd like to have. Um, and make sure that, you know, you're hitting all those boxes that they're looking for. And if there are boxes that are left unchecked, you know, do things to help bolster your resume so that you can be competitive for those type of roles. Yeah, complete, completely both and both of those. It's almost like do something. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like the, uh, the, the field is littered with people who I think think a lot about it and then but they don't actually take any actions. They just talk to their family and their friends about it. And so it's like whether whatever it is on the LinkedIn and I agree. I spoke with somebody yesterday who'd been referred to me who kind of had the trifecta. This person um, had lost their job and um, they claim that the LinkedIn, they couldn't get into LinkedIn, the, that something was up with the password and none of it worked. And also, I noticed that there was a discrepancy between what was on LinkedIn for them and what was on their resume, a pretty key discrepancy. And so the person asked for advice and I literally said, honestly, you should be hanging up the phone on me and you should be immediately fixing your LinkedIn problem. This is the number one thing you should be doing. I don't know why you're still talking to me. So it's like, do something. Um, small, so. Mike, such a small thing, but make sure there's no typos or mm -hmm. grammar mistakes on your LinkedIn and on your resume. Get a good profile photo. Right. Sometimes yeah, those photos and, and, you know, because people are making split judgments based upon presentation and polish. And uh, yeah. some of the photos you see on LinkedIn can look quite unprofessional. So that's yeah, one curious, thing. Actually, what you do if you think I always wonder about this, because I sometimes I see these pictures. I think we all know what an unprofessional photo looks like. But sometimes I see these pictures that are very lovely photos, but they're like on their favorite mountaintop or mm -hmm. rafting on a river. And they're lovely photos. Do you think that's a bit unprofessional to put on your LinkedIn page or do you think it, that's fine and it's totally I think fine? They should, they should stay on Facebook, in my that, opinion. That's what I think. Um, <laughs> and also, when there's no picture at all, that usually bugs me, too, because it seems like you don't have any trust in your own brand. Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing when uh, people have asked me, hey, can I wear my favorite purple suit to an interview? And I say, look, bring your whole self to work for sure. But go with, you know, at the end of the day, we're in the legal industry, which is, you know, always a bit you want to play it safe a little bit and, and 
present yourself the way that you want to be seen. So I would go with the profile that's professionally taken or something that you ask a friend to take, maybe a, a, a plain background, uh, a suit or a jacket or a work outfit that you feel comfortable showing to the world. So keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I always when I see those pictures on LinkedIn, I always wonder about it because they are nice photos, but I don't know that they're. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly what you want to give. Is that if you hire me, I'll be you know climbing the Mount Everest. Um, um, and then just a couple more questions before we wrap up here. And this has been a great conversation. So thanks to both of you for spending the time. Um, the recruiting business, you know, you have these conversations with people. They start asking about what we do. Uh, obviously, we're not going to reveal our secrets uh, to the world uh, to the extent we have those secrets. But what do you, not to be too self, uh, self-referential, self but what do you think people, are there things that people misunderstand about what we do and what our roles are? Something would be good if people are listening to this podcast at the end. Hey, there's one thing I'd like you to know before you reach out to Ton or Kirk or, or Mike. Um, what, what, do, what do you think that would be? Mike, I one thing that's unique to MLA is that I've had candidates ask me, hey, I'm worried that the company might not pick me if I'm working with you because then they're going to have to pay your fee. And it was, I quickly disavowed that candidate of that misunderstanding by explaining that, you know, at MLA, we we partner with our clients and our fee structure is such that we we set it up so that we can make the right hiring decisions with our clients. Um, without that bias of you know the the fees involved in recruiting um no candidate is ever disadvantaged by working with us in fact you know what we do here is finding out what's so great about a candidate and going beyond the surface level understanding someone's background how they lead interpersonal skills all the cultural fit questions to be able to advocate for you as a candidate. Um, so I've had people experience the, I've, I've experienced the misconception from candidates that were, you know, also maybe p- paid to find them a job or that we mm-hmm. just hook up our lawyer friends with jobs, you know, and as someone who was in the dark before I became a legal recruiter, I think that word of even headhunter, um, the idea that maybe we're like socialites who make fees from simply <laughs> people we pull out of a hat. Um, I think something good for people to understand is the tremendous rigor process systems that we apply to search execution that starts with actively targeting a candidate population and turning over every stone to truly canvas the market on behalf of a client. And that there is a level of partnership with the client so that we make the right pick together. Yeah, I mean, Tom, I, I don't think I could have said it any better myself. I think that's exactly right. Um, I think one con- misconception I hear a lot is that, you know, on the flip side, candidates think that we make the, the hiring decision um, or think that we are directly responsible with who gets hired and who doesn't. And, you know, our job is to serve as strategic partners to our clients, to give them strategic advice, but to work with them. But at the end of the day, the ultimate decision on who to hire doesn't lie with MLA or with the recruiter, it's going to lie with the client. 100%, um, 100%. I exactly agree with both of you. It's, I don't think it, there's too many misconceptions, but I think sometimes there are key ones. And I think in some ways, if I were telling a candidate, it would be, or really anybody, a client, it's, and I'm going to say two things that are sort of, I don't think they're at, at, at conflict with each other, but one, one, ask us anything. 
if you're not sure about something, just ask us. Like, we're here to help. Like, the reality is that whether it's a third-year law student or an attorney with 40 years of experience or a client or a candidate, like, we're here to help. Like, we want to help. So ask anything if you're not sure about something. The thing that's somewhat in conflict with that, though, is that if you are actually working on a specific search with us, we are asked to give our opinion, and we are doing, to Tan's point, a very careful process. So once we're engaged on a specific search, do realize that obviously our client is going to ask us, what do you think about these candidates? And uh, we're ultimately not a priest. We're not a counselor in that regard. We are helping our clients who are paying our, our, our fees at the end of the day and our bills. And so we do have to, we have a responsibility there. And so our candidates do have to follow along with that and sort of understand that dynamic that exists. So um, I don't know if those things are in conflict with each other, but I try to separate the two things. And I, I, I would tell I would tell a candidate, if you do that, you'll be in really good shape. So um, so we're, we're finishing 2023. We're, we're, we're getting out of here. What do you uh, um, what are you going to miss about this year? Let's end things on a high note. Um, what do you what's what are you going to look back on, you know, 10 years from now and think, oh, yeah, 2023. That was when this great thing happened or that's that was my memory of that year. Mine is not work related, but I am a huge Beyonce fan and I got to see her twice this year, <laughs> once in Paris, once in D.C. So I will always look back on this year and think of Beyonce. That's a good one, Kirk. I couldn't follow up with anything better than that. I'm going <laughs> to. You can borrow mine, it. Mine is, <laughs> I wish you'd invited me, Kirk. Uh, my my greatest memory in 23 was honestly helping companies, clients, candidates in a bind. Uh, I had a client that was in a total bind, worked with a contingent search firm after three, four months, could not get the hire done and came to me at a time when they said, we wanted the, the the new candidate to start now, and now we're asking you to start this GC search. Um, the company was in a total bind. We jumped in head first. We knew the industry, the legal market, and the candidate pool. We knew we had a ticking time bomb as, you know, time was not on our side. And the ability to just finish that GC search in record time, um, provide that client with a service that they were happy with and really just get that candidate, that right candidate in the door, so providing support and solutions in a time of need. That's um, that's what I'm going to miss about 23. And um, as someone who basically, you know, these are companies that we're changing the trajectory of and candidates that we're helping get into new positions and changing their career trajectory as well. That's what I'm going to miss from 23. And um excited that we do that on a daily basis and looking forward to doing that more of that in 24. So I'm going to steal from both of you. So it is the year that I bought a new car. Um, yes. I only mentioned that I only mentioned that on this call because it was Kirk Coleman uh, who, <laughs> who encouraged me to buy my first electric car I'd ever had in my life. And so without Kirk, I might have uh, gone for the uh, well, I'm just say I would have gone for the other car at the end of the day. So thanks to Kirk, I have a fancy car that really drives incredibly fast. Uh, and so. And your wife is happy too, Mike. And my wife is very happy with it. She's very proud. I just saw her, in fact, just driving it down the street a few minutes ago. So, and then uh, on a work perspective, I would say, and having done this for 15 years now, you know, there's obviously been years that have been tougher and years that have been better. But even in a year that, you know, internally we feel like, oh, it's a tougher year or whatever, there were still uh, great clients. There were still 
great placements. There were still great candidates, great clients, just great things that happened there. And, you know, every year you hear, oh, it's a tougher year. I always wonder, gee, will this be a year everything kind of craters and the market and they'll be challenging? It's just another evidence that, you know, when you, when when I'll say this to people out there who might be looking for jobs, you know, if, if people tell you it's tough out there, there's still great, great, great jobs, even in tough years. There were great people being hired in 2009. There were great people being hired in 2020. And certainly this year was nowhere near as tough as those years. There were still great people being hired uh, this year as well. So more evidence of that. Mike and Kirk, may I call you both for car recommendations because I'll share here that I'm in the market for a new and bigger car as my family, as you both know, is going from two kids to three in 24. And um, we just got back from a family trip lugging two kids around on a plane. I'm going to miss my small Honda Fit in lieu for maybe a soccer mom van or whatever Kirk recommends. I'll send Kirk, you some recommendations, Don. I, sure. Did I hear Kirk recommend volunteering to do about an hour or two of research for you? He's given us all that, you know, I think I heard that pretty, pretty, pretty I heard pretty that well. too, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, thanks to both of you. I know everyone here is incredibly busy uh, with, with a lot of personal and professional things. So this was a lovely conversation. I hope to do it again with the two of you. So let's uh, maybe make this an annual tradition if we can. Yes, let's Absolutely. Happy holidays to you both if I don't speak to you before the year end. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to everybody. Thank you. All right. That will do it for this episode. Uh, as always, I would love to get your feedback on these podcasts. Um, always leave my email address, msacks at mlaglobal.com. Uh, we've done 10 of them in 2023 and would love to hear what people liked, what they didn't like, suggestions for future topics or speakers. Um, in the meantime, uh, we're going to be coming back in 2024 doing a whole other series of podcasts with uh, great general counsels and other people in the legal recruiting market. So I hope everyone uh, tell your friends, um, join us again next year and uh, happy holidays to everyone. Thanks for listening and uh, be back in touch next year. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to In-House Legal Uncovered. Join us next time as we dig into another topic that will better help you navigate your in-house legal career.